Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. A couple of announcements as we begin on this rainy Sunday morning. Um, one is to mention, as I think was mentioned last week, um, that we're, we're trying to uh, continue to be careful uh, with our, our precautions as we're gathering. Um, so we encourage you to continue to, to wear a mask uh, on your way in and on your way out um, and to, to try and distance from each other as much as possible uh, during the service. Um, we just we don't want to take any chances. We've got some folks uh, not with us this morning uh, because of potential COVID exposure. Uh, Kevin and Kathy, that's where they are this morning. Uh, Allison's not feeling well. She has a cold so, or something. So pray for her. She's not, uh, not with us this morning. It was wonderful to, uh, I think most of you were here, at Trunk or Treat last night. And that was, uh, that was a wonderful experience. Uh, we have guesses ranging anywhere from 130 to 160 kids here last night. So it was a great turnout. And that was, uh, that was a wonderful thing to be a part of. And we had a lot of fun doing it, I think. And, uh, and so that was wonderful. Uh, each of those kids received a tract with the gospel on it. So just uh, be praying for those seeds as they've been scattered, uh, that the Lord would be at work. Um, even just in the, uh, in the kindness of a gesture of, um, sort of opening up our parking lot to the community that, uh, that people would have experienced the love of Christ. One last announcement as we get going here is that uh, we'd hoped to start Sunday school this morning, but we kind of keep kicking the can down the road um, because of COVID and other considerations. And so we'll keep you in the loop on that. Any other announcements that I'm missing this morning? Katie. Okay. Okay. So we've got hot dog rolls and hot dogs and cider um, left over. And uh, if you'd like to purchase those uh, from the church and make use of them, talk to Katie about that. One last thing as we get started here. Uh, because I wasn't here last week, I wanted to say a couple of words. Uh, it, was, uh, it was my joy last Saturday to accept the call of uh, this congregation to serve as your pastor. And uh, so you're going to have to listen to me say a couple words now. I've, uh, I've been convinced of God's call on my life to serve as a pastor and a preacher for the last five years, and, uh, and I'm grateful for his providential leading uh, in calling me from that time forward to prepare to shepherd his people, and, uh, and I know now that the call he was pre preparing me for was an assignment to this pulpit and to this people, and I thank God for that. And uh, I'm thankful for you, church, in welcoming me here uh, a year and a half ago as an intern. 
I'm thankful for your patience and your, your grace with me as I, as I learn on the job how to be a pastor. Please keep being patient with me. I want to do well by you and well by the Lord. And I thank, I thank God for all of you. I'm, I'm grateful for, uh, for Pastor Steve's confidence in me, for his willingness to shepherd my soul and to labor to prepare me for ministry here at Liberty Baptist. I thank God for Steve and I miss him. I'm thankful to have a wife who's behind me, who's my indispensable helper, and without whose presence and support, I couldn't and wouldn't have ever considered a call to this church. I'm thankful, too, for the prospect of serving a church which values pastors who stick around. We love liberty, and we love this church, and uh, experienced pastors inform me that a pastor's most effective ministry kicks in at around year five, and uh, it gives Miranda and I joy to consider raising our children here in this church. It truly does give me joy to think and to plan for the future here, so I wanted to just thank you and thank the Lord uh, for the privilege of serving here as, as pastor. Please pray for me, and I love you, brothers and sisters. Let's begin our service with a word of prayer. Father, we are gathered here in your name this morning to praise you, to praise your son Jesus who died for us, and to gather in the presence of your Holy Spirit to give you all the worship and the praise. We're gathered here to hear from your word. We're gathered here to pray to you, to lift up our praises and our intercessions. We're here this morning, Father, to come to the Lord's table as we're invited to partake in the blood and the body of Jesus by grace. We pray your blessing over the service this morning, Father. Pray that your spirit would be present among us, that you would be at work, and that in all these things you would be glorified and we would be built up as your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin the service with a reading from Psalm 34. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 and verse 22. Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge 
in him. This is God's word. Let's stand together now. We'll sing uh, hymn number 151, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Standing for 338, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Dottie, could you um, 
put this one down a step or two. Thank you. of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame, oh, Magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise his name. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching to all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Chains have been torn asunder, giving me liberty for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise His name. Grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled, by its transforming power, making him God's dear child, purchasing peace and heaven for all eternity, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, Greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his 
seated. At this time, I'll have uh, uh, the ushers come forward, uh, Brian and Randy, and uh, they'll take the, uh, the morning offering. Which doxology do you want to? Uh, just the standard one. Uh, we're going to sing uh, a song called In Christ Alone Now. Uh, do, you, do you have the, the music with you? Awesome. So let's stand together and sing in Christ alone. Depths of peace when fears are stilled, when 
and striving seas, my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, this gift of love. Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, coming before the Lord in prayer now. I don't see any prayer slips, any prayer requests. Russ, the election. the election, absolutely. Jane. Yes, yeah, yeah. Praying for for fruit from trunk or treat last night that the Lord will will bless what we what we did and the the tracts that have been distributed. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, kn I know a number of folks were invited to church last night, so, um, yeah, Terry. On the same note, just to mention the prayers for Amanda Hmm. Just that she had a blast. Awesome. Last night, but we just wanted to 
Okay. Yeah, we'll pray for Hazel. Amen. Yeah, praying for the lost in our families, in our community, co-workers, Dean. Yeah. Yeah, we'll remember Kevin and Kathy, and um, they're, they're not sick, but they're distanced because of uh, you know, possible exposure, and uh, Allison as well, as she's not with us this morning because she's not feeling well. Yeah, Herman, who's not with us this morning because he's, he's having difficulty breathing. Steve Wadsworth continues to make recovery. Uh, I continue to, to pray for him there. Yeah, Maureen. Yeah. Yeah, everyone who has COVID. Good. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give thanks to you. We call upon your name. We sing praises to you. We tell of your wonder, wondrous works. We glory in your holy name. Let our hearts, Lord, the hearts of those who seek you, rejoice. We seek you, God. You are our strength. And we seek your presence continually. We constantly remember all the wonderful works you have done. Father, we confess that we've wandered and strayed from your ways even this week, following too much the desires of our hearts. We've offended against your laws. We ask, Lord, that you'd have mercy on us. You'd restore us as we come to you in repentance and confess according to the promises that you've made to us in Christ Jesus. We lean into the promise, Lord, that for those who confess, who come into the light, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity in Jesus' name. We ask, Father, that you'd grant to us, as your people, as we seek to live um, more and more in the image of your son, Jesus, that you would teach us to walk in holiness and righteousness. We come, Lord, uh, with a burden for our community, for our friends, for our family, for our coworkers, for the many people in our lives who are far from you and who haven't experienced the transformative love of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for all those who are far from you, that you would bring them near. We think, Lord, of, of Hazel. Uh, she's just one of many names we could name this morning, Lord, of people we've consistently brought before your throne, asking that you would soften their hearts to you, and that they would find the peace and the joy that is found in knowing Jesus and believing the gospel. We pray, Father, for these people that you'd be at work in their hearts. Give us opportunity to speak to them in what ways are helpful and right. Give us boldness to speak your gospel. Give us clarity of mind and of heart to do it with conviction and clarity. We pray for our church family. Pray that you continue to be with us and bless us in this new season. We pray that uh, you'd uh, protect us, Lord, from any sort of uh, uh, COVID in 
infection or outbreak, uh, that we'd be able to continue to gather consistently, Lord, through this uh, craziness in the world, uh, that we'd, uh, we'd continue to be able to come to fellowship with one another and to come to your word um, for the encouragement that we need in crazy times. We pray for Kevin and Kathy. Lord, we pray that uh, this potential exposure would come to nothing and that they'd be able to gather with us again very soon. We pray for uh, Allison. Lord, she's not feeling well this morning. Lots of colds and allergies going around this time of year. We pray that uh, you'd bring her back to a full measure of health. We pray for our election this week as we uh, uh, go to the polls as a nation to choose our next president. We pray your guidance uh, over us, Lord, as we uh, seek to exercise our right as citizens. We pray, Lord, for your will to be done in this nation, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that you would guide the events of our time for your glory and for the building of your church. We pray, Father, that whatever the outcome, we'd be witnesses through our unshakable confidence in you, whatever happens. We know as your word says that it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Our refuge is in you, Lord. We, we confess first, not Caesar is Lord, but Christ is Lord. We know that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. So we confess together with Christians across the ages. Christ is Lord. We pray, Father, that you would be at work this week in, your na in this nation for your glory. We pray your blessing over um, the fruit of uh, our trunk or treat last night, Father. We pray that many uh, would have been encouraged just from uh, the, the small offering, Lord, of a little bit of candy to the community. Um, we pray, Lord, that many um, will be impacted for you and for your, the building of your kingdom, that, uh, uh, Lord, their interest may have been piqued um, by uh, a, a word shared, Lord, along the way or by the, the tract uh, in the candy bag. And uh, we, we just pray that, uh, that you use our efforts for your glory in this community. Finally, Lord, we think of all those with COVID. Uh, Lord, there's, uh, there's many uh, who are, are struggling now uh, uh, because of it and because of its effects in our society and the restrictions that have been placed upon us. So we, we pray, Lord, uh, for all those who are struggling in this time. We think especially of those in our immediate community. We pray that uh, you give us opportunity to, to help where help is needed, to be your hands and feet on this earth. And we think, Lord, of those churches that have been impacted because of this, who have seen... Uh, Lord, uh, outbreaks of various sizes in their churches, and as a result, their witness has been um, uh, criticized, Lord. And, uh, and we pray for, for these faithful Christians who are doing their best in a difficult time. Uh, we thank, Lord, of the Brooks Pentecostal Church, of the Callous Second Baptist Church. We pray that you continue to use those bodies of believers for your glory. We pray that you bless the rest of the service this morning. Be with us by your pre the presence of your spirit. Give us joy in your word as we celebrate the goodness of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
uh, before we move on to the sermon, I want to do a responsive reading out of the hymnal. Number 524. Open up your hymnals. Let's stand together. Number 524. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. Today's November 1st, November 1st, and uh, before we jump into the, the meat of the sermon, I wanted to talk a little bit about yesterday, which is October 31st, which is special for a couple of reasons. First of all, of course, it's celebrated in our culture as, Hall as Halloween. That's why we, we hosted Trunk or Treat last night in our parking lot. We handed out a lot of candy, a lot of gospel tracts. Um, and Halloween can be a hot button issue among Christians, so I just wanted to touch on it briefly. Uh, I grew up in a family which condemned any participation in Halloween. We didn't do Halloween growing up. Um, and some Christians see Halloween as, um, as inherently participating in something evil or demonic or even just unhelpful. And so some Christians, uh, by conscience, choose not to participate. And uh, some, even among you, may have those convictions. And um, that's, that's good, that's fine, right? This is a debatable issue among Christians. So if you, if you do have those convictions, uh, we're, we're glad that you, you may not participate. Uh, with that said, as a church, we do sponsor a trunk or treat event on Halloween night. Um, I don't believe that passing out candy on Halloween is inherently participating in, in something evil. In fact, if you go back far enough, Halloween's origins are, are Christian, as much as the, uh, the pagans would like to take all of our holidays from us. Uh, Halloween is, is, a is a contraction, the word itself, of All Hallows' Eve, All Hallows' Eve. And historically, on November 1st, today, many churches across the world uh, celebrate today as All Saints Day, or All Hallows Day. And so the day before, historically, was celebrated as All Hallows Eve. And so that's where Halloween comes from. And uh, 
um, church history tells us probably around 500 Christians were celebrating All Hallows Eve. So the last 1,500 years, Halloween has been a Christian holiday, kind of co-opted uh, more recently. And uh, All Saints Day was a day to remember all those who had died in Christ. Um, so there's always been kind of a connotation with death, but not in the way many people celebrate Halloween as a day of death. As Christians, we don't celebrate or glorify death any day or on Halloween. Death is an enemy over which we have victory in Christ. And death will one day be defeated forever under the eternal, victorious reign of Christ. Death itself will die. So in the Christian tradition, All Saints Day and All Saints Eve are days to celebrate the victory of Christians over death in Christ. So if we do it right, Halloween can be our day to laugh at death, to mock the darkness as we rest in our victory in Christ. So that's, that's personally how I approach Halloween. And again, this is a matter of conscience um, over which we can, we can disagree. It bears saying that there are unchristian and even demonic ways to celebrate Halloween. Our culture has seized on the opportunity to glorify all sorts of things which we ought not to glorify. Uh, some trick-or-treat costumes glorify gore and horror and sin and demons and death. We don't glorify darkness as Christians any day or on Halloween, even in our Halloween costumes. Uh, I like to steal a phrase from a well-known Christian writer who says, we shouldn't dress up like the other team. <laughs> Dressing up like demons and witches and murderers isn't fun, or it shouldn't be because demons and witches and murderers aren't fun. Demons are real and witches flirt with the devil and murderers destroy the image of God. Sin isn't fun and Christians shouldn't dress like it is, even on Halloween. So I don't wanna bind anyone's conscience either way on the question of celebrating Halloween or not. Um, do or do not <laughs> um, as your conscience leads you. Um, but if you do celebrate All Hallows' Eve, do so as a Christian, one who has victory over darkness and sin, who knows the risen Christ, who laughs at death. And please don't dress like the other team. I could say more here, but I'm not preaching on Halloween this morning. Uh, October 31st is Halloween, but it's also celebrated by Protestant Christians as Reformation Day. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me on just a little bit more history this morning, uh, if you can take it. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And in doing so, he started a conversation about theological abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. That was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, when churches across Europe reformed themselves in light of Scripture. Sola Scriptura was their slogan. It's, it's Latin. It means Scripture alone. And Protestants, like them and like us, believe that Scripture alone is our final authority as Christians. And we're actually going to talk more about script, uh, Sola Scriptura next week when we dive into Mark chapter 7. Today's kind of an interlude week. Uh, we won't be in Mark this morning. What Luther discovered at the time of the Reformation 
was that the medieval Roman Catholic Church had abandoned the biblical gospel. As Luther studied scripture, he realized that the good news of Jesus, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in him, was being distorted and denied by the powers that be in the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther brought his, his findings to the attention of Rome, and just three years after he nailed those theses to the Wittenberg door on Halloween, he was excommunicated, kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church that he was seeking to reform. And Luther's final conclusion after being booted out was that if Scripture and the church disagreed, if he was going to be forced to choose between believing the Roman Catholic Church or believing the Word of God, he would believe the Word of God. That's the doctrine of sola scriptura. We'll talk more about that next week. Scripture alone is our final authority. So why is all this relevant to us at Liberty Baptist Church 503 years later? None of us live in Wittenberg. Well, as Baptist Christians, like Luther, we're Protestants. We were born out of the protest against the Roman Catholic Church. Our, our lineage goes back to Martin Luther and the other protesting reformers who rediscovered the gospel of Jesus at the Protestant Reformation. So this week, on the 503rd anniversary of his first protest, I want to look at the biblical distinctives of the gospel that Martin Luther and the other reformers rediscovered, the good news of Jesus. And this isn't just a history lesson. In fact, I'm pretty much done with the history at this point. The issue of defining the biblical gospel is a live issue. No matter what year it is, we need to be able to define what the good news of Jesus is and what the good news of Jesus isn't because the gospel is a matter of life and death. We're dealing with the very important question, what must I do to be saved? And this is an essential question, not just in the 16th century, but in every century until Christ returns. As human beings living in God's world, this question makes the difference between eternal life in the joyful presence of God and eternal death separated from every joy there is in God. Getting the gospel right makes the difference between heaven and hell, between salvation and damnation. The issue of rightly defining the biblical gospel is a live issue, and it should matter to us. That's why Reformation Day matters. That's why we're taking a break from our series through Mark to spend a morning defining the biblical gospel. So we're going to do that this morning by working through two passages in Scripture, and we'll look at a couple of others along the way as well. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 and Romans 3. So uh, as we begin, let's read both of these passages together, and then we'll pray. So let's start, uh, let's start in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading out of the NIV. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable terrible riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do And let's look also at Romans uh, chapter 3. We'll read verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd move in power among us this morning as we read and study your word. The issue of your gospel is vital in our lives. And it's vital for eternal life with you. Help us to get it right. Light up our hearts and our minds by your spirit this morning to understand your word more clearly to believe your gospel more fully, and to love your son Jesus more fervently as we seek to savor the gospel of his grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you've got five solas back there. Protestants often sum up the distinctives of the biblical understanding of the gospel with five solas. And sola is not a word we use very much. It's a Latin word. It just means alone. It means alone. And I mentioned one sola already, sola scriptura. We'll talk about that next week. This week we're going to tackle the other four. And I, I put them on the back of your bulletin in case it, it helps you to have them in front of you as we move through them. So you'll see there our big idea. Sinners are justified by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, 
to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. That's our big idea this morning. Sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But don't just take my word for it. We're going to take each part of that statement and prove it from Scripture, both in Ephesians 2 and in Romans 3. So start, if you will, with me in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. And these are, these are helpful summary verses as we get started. You could almost prove the whole statement just from these two verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the first thing that we encounter here is grace. For by grace you have been saved. That's our first so, sola, sola gratias, grace alone. By grace you have been saved. What does it mean that we're saved by grace alone? Well, first we should ask, what does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? Someone in a car accident is saved from the wreckage by a firefighter. Someone in the desert is saved from thirst by an oasis. What have we been saved from? Well, Paul explains, starting in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul is writing to people who are already Christians in the church at Ephesus. They've already been saved, and what they've been saved from, Paul says, is death. This is where you were before Jesus came into your life. You were dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. Dead to God. Dead, he says, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The car wreck that we've been saved from, if we know Christ, is walking death, a spiritual death. We've been saved from our rebellion against God, our own ignorance of our Creator. That's our default state as human beings. Romans 3.23, which we read, says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being since Adam and Eve and their first sin in the garden has been a sinner, spiritually dead to God. Our natural inclination is actually towards hard-heartedness in God, towards God. We all start out, as Paul puts it in verse 2 of Ephesians 2, we all start out following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. At birth, we all start out playing follow the leader with our sinful world and with the devil. There's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to God. We all start out against him, walking among what Paul calls the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And this is the kind of lifestyle in which most of humankind lives. Not living with a passion for God or a passion to love and serve the Creator, but instead living in the passions of the flesh. Verse 3 again, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Default, spiritually dead humanity is self-fulfillment oriented and blind to God. 
body and mind just want, 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 with no connection at all to God or reference to our Creator. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the result, Paul says, is that we all start out not just as uh, sons of disobedience, but verse 3 again, as children of wrath. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, Paul's talking to Christians here. He's saying, before you knew Christ, before we knew Christ, we were by nature children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience in verse 2 because of our sin, and we're children of wrath in verse 3 because that's the consequence of our sin. Sons of disobedience become children of wrath because sin has consequences. Sin actually deserves wrath. And that's trouble for us because we're compulsive sinners. Our hearts are hopelessly bent towards evil. What we deserve as guilty sinners is God's wrath on sin. His perfect, blinding justice on the impurity and the sinfulness of humankind. Romans 6.32, the wages of sin is death. It's a sobering truth, but it's the truth, so we better pay attention to it. In ignoring and rebelling against our Creator, we've brought down on ourselves the wrath of our Creator. And what we deserve from God as a result of our sin is death. We need saving. I hope you can see that. We need saving from our sin and from God's wrath on our sin. We need somehow to be cleansed from our sin, to be forgiven. We need somehow for God's wrath to be appeased. We need somehow to be restored to right relationship to our Creator. That's the kind of saving we need. The trouble is we don't deserve that kind of saving. We're all sinners. And the wage of sin is death. So when we come to God looking to be saved, we come with pockets empty. In fact, more than empty. We come with an unpayable debt racked up on the credit card. When we come to God, we don't come with any kind of merit by which God would look at us and say, he's worth saving, she's worth saving. We come nothing, not even pennies in the account. By ourselves, we're, we're hopeless. Remember verse 1 of Ephesians 2, and you were dead. That's the metaphor Paul uses. That was us before Christ, dead. Last I checked, dead people don't come to life by themselves. There's nothing in a dead person that can reanimate itself. So any salvation that can come to a spiritually dead person must come from outside of himself or herself. Where can we look for help? Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 8, for by grace, you have been saved. Only God can make spiritually dead people alive, and in the abundance of his grace, he actually does. 
And God didn't save us because we were worth saving. We were hopeless. We were dead. He saved us because apart from anything in us, he decided to show his gracious love toward us. He saved us because he is overwhelmingly loving. His grace, not our merit, is the key to our salvation. God, Paul is telling us, saves sinners by his grace from their sins. How does he do that? What kind of salvation do sinners need if we're sons of disobedience and children of wrath? How does God bring us to life from that kind of spiritual death? What we need to be saved from is our sin, right? We're sons of disobedience, and God's wrath on our sin, sons of wrath, children of wrath. We need somehow to be cleansed from our sin, and we need somehow to be forgiven for God's wrath, righteous wrath on our sin to be appeased. We need to be restored somehow to right relationship to God. And that kind of saving in biblical terms, those in the Gospel 101 group will recognize this term, the kind of saving we need is justification. Justification. Paul lays it out real clearly in Romans 3. If you want to turn over to Romans 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the bad news. And the good news, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification, another one of these words we don't use very much in common speech. But justification, put simply, is what happens when God declares a guilty person innocent. It's a legal declaration. God justifies when he takes a spiritually dead sinner, makes them alive to Christ, declaring them righteous, restoring them by decree to right relationship with God. The important thing to understand here is that it's our sin that separates us from God. It's our rebellion that's what keeps us from knowing him. And justification removes that barrier. Justification clears the charges that we could never argue. Justification pays the debt that we could never pay. Justification takes guilty sinners, cleans them up, and seats them at God's dinner table. Justification is exactly what sinners need. It's exactly what he gives us by his grace. If you're a Christian, you are justified not because of anything in you, but by God's grace alone. We'll talk about how that happens in the next couple points. It's enough to say for this first point that God justifies us by his grace alone. The very definition of grace is unmerited favor, undeserved goodness. Sinners are saved, justified by God's undeserved goodness towards us. Hallelujah. There's our first point. Remember our big idea. Sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So we've talked about justification by grace. Let's move on to our next alone. Christ alone. 
Christ alone. Solus Christus. Remember what we read in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Pause. The question here is, how is this possible? We know what justification means, but how can God do it? How can God justify sinners legally? How can God let sinners go free? Is that allowed? Judges who do that in courts get fired. Cops who do that on the streets are called dirty cops. How can God forgive the unforgivable? How can God declare us righteous when we're not? That's where Christ comes in. Unpause on that verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is the core of the gospel. Our justification, our right standing before God, which he gives us by his grace, comes through the redemption that is in Jesus. The cross is quite literally at the crux of the issue. Our justification was purchased by the blood of Jesus. God put Jesus forward, Paul says, as a propitiation, a propitiation by his blood. Another unfamiliar word here. The best way to remember what propitiation means is to remember that propitiation has to do with wrath, which we've talked about. We've said that apart from Christ, we're sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Apart from Christ, we're, we're under the wrath of God, which our sins deserve. And propitiation is the appeasement of wrath. Propitiation turns wrath away. And Jesus, Paul tells us, was put forward by God the Father as a propitiation by his blood. God sent his Son the second person of the eternal trinity into the world with the specific intent that he should be a propitiation. Christ lived a perfect life on earth, truly human and truly God, experiencing the whole range of human pain and temptation. He did it all without sin. And as Christ hung on the cross, his blood pouring out. He died a death he didn't deserve, right? He's the first man who'd ever lived who didn't deserve death. The wages of sinlessness is life. And yet Christ took upon himself the wrath for sin, which we deserve. The wages of sin is death, and Christ paid that wage on the cross. He bore the wrath of God, which we should be bearing. Christ is our propitiation. He stands in the gap. In his love for sinners, God seeks to forgive. And at the same time, in his perfect justice, he must punish sin. He cannot simply pass over our sin like an unjust judge. But neither does he delight in the death of the wicked. 
And Christ is the answer. In love, the Father sent the Son into the world. He came willingly for our sakes that he might be our propitiation, that he might stand in the gap and bear in his body the wrath of the Father for our sin. He suffered the death we deserved on the cross as Jesus died, like we sang, the wrath of God was satisfied. I want to illustrate this truth with a story. Um, and I want to read uh, an illustration from the Gospel 101 book, actually. We've been studying in our evening small groups this fall. It's a wonderful word picture. I forgot it over here, just a second. I think it'll be most effective without comment, so I'll just read it. Once upon a time, in a kingdom far away, there lived a great king. He was simultaneously the most powerful man in the kingdom and the kindest and gentlest man in the entire realm. And the kingdom was known for its peace, harmony, and goodwill. Neighbors cherished one another and years would pass without a single crime being committed. One day, however, the chief servant of the merciful king came into the throne room with ill tidings. There's a thief in the realm of your kingdom, sire, said the servant. The king was astonished. Find that thief, and when you do, bring him to me. He will be punished with ten lashes. Those in the room were astonished. It had been so long since a crime had been committed that they could hardly imagine who would have done such a thing. A week went by, and the servant again made his way into the throne room. I have bad news for you, sire, the servant reported quietly. The thief has not been found, and he continues to rob from your people. In anger, the king raised his voice and said, Find the thief, and when you do, he will receive twenty-five lashes. The people began to murmur among themselves, Who could withstand such a punishment? Who could possibly be committing such a crime? But as time went on, the servant once again came back into the throne room with yet another bad report. Your majesty, the thief, has not been found. We have searched in vain for him. Your people are still being robbed. The king was enraged. Find that wretched thief. And when you do, his punishment will be 50 lashes. Now the people were filled with dread. They weren't even sure if the king himself could withstand such a punishment. And if he couldn't, then certainly no one could. Who could be doing such a thing? Soon afterward, the servant again approached the king in his throne room. His face was pale and his voice timid and hollow. Your Highness, spoke the servant, the thief has been found. Bring him to me this instant, cried the king. The crowd that had poured into the throne room slowly parted, revealing the thief who now stood trembling in the middle of the room. To the utter, utter shock and dismay of, it all, of all, it was the king's aged mother. There she stood, trembling and crying. Her small and frail body was shaking with fear and shame. She was perhaps the very last soul that anyone would have suspected of such a crime, 
And there stood the king, deeply wounded. The crowd began to wonder and murmur among themselves, what will the merciful king do? Will he set aside the law and display his love and mercy by forgiving his mother for her crimes? Or will he display his sovereignty and justice by giving her exactly what she deserves? Will he choose mercy or will he choose justice? The king raised his hand to quiet the crowd. Bring the whipping post, he said. The crowd was dumbfounded. Would the king truly have his mother receive such a punishment? Even the king could scarcely survive such a flogging. This frail woman would not last even a few strokes. The old woman was tied to the post. Her garment was rent, exposing her back to the whipmaster. Her ribs could be counted for her frailty. Administer the lashes, said the king. Not a sound could be heard as the whip was raised. But just as the whipmaster was about to unleash his first stroke, the king cried, Halt! The king stood from his throne. He slowly removed the crown from his head, laying it upon the regal seat. As he began to walk down the stairs towards his mother, he laid aside his royal robe and finely woven tunic. And coming to his mother, he wrapped his enormous body around her, completely enveloping her under his frame. Now administer the lashes, said the king. Christ is our propitiation. We're justified by God's grace alone in the person of Christ. Christ bore our wrath. And Christ is enough. The death he died is sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God and to justify, to make righteous sinners like us. We are saved in Christ alone, the crucified King. The next sola is sola fide, faith alone. Romans 3 again, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We come now to our third sola of the morning, sola fide, faith alone. Scripture is clear that on the cross, as Jesus died, he did not justify every person. When we were born, we were, made, we were sinners by default. But when Christ died, not every human being was justified by default. Scripture is very clear on this. Paul specifies in verse 25 that the propitiation by Christ's blood is received not by default, but by faith. Faith is belief. It's confidence. It's trust. The way we receive the gracious justification which Christ bought on the cross is faith in him. The key which unlocks the door of the bottomless vault of God's goodness in Jesus is simply faith. And faith alone. 
apart from works. Paul clarifies this in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Similarly, Paul says in Romans 3, verse 28, for we hold that no one, excuse me, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There's nothing we have to do to receive justification other than simply to trust in Christ, to come to the King. All that's required of undeserving sinners is that we come in simple faith. John 1.12 But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For those of you who are not Christians, may not be Christians, I need you to understand this. Your sin condemns you, but your God is for you. There is much that would keep you from him as you stand in his throne room before him, the sentence of lashes hangs over you. Our sin as humans is enough to condemn us to be forever apart from the presence and the love of God, but he has made a way. His grace is sufficient. Christ's death is enough. Come to faith in him. Believe that Christ is enough. Throw yourself into the arms of the crucified king and you will not be turned away. You don't have to come cleaned up. You don't have to have it all put together. You don't have to have it all figured out. In fact, it'll probably help if you're desperate and falling apart because that's when we have a feeling sense of our need for him. When we have a feeling sense of our need for him, that's when we're most inclined to throw ourselves into his arms, run to Christ. You can be justified by faith alone. In rearticulating this biblical doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, the reformers like Luther were pushing back against the Catholic error that somehow you had to build up merit and works in order to be saved. It's a complicated system, but basically they acknowledge that there is some grace involved, but that at the end of the day or at the end of your life, there had to be corresponding merit, good works, in the life of the individual Christian, if they were going to be really justified, justification, they would say, is not by grace alone, through faith alone. Rome still teaches this today. They've nuanced it, but the fact remains. It's an insidious lie, and in our pride, we'd like to believe it, right? There's a, there's a part of us that would like to believe that that God saved us because we were in some small way worth saving. We, were, we weren't. <laughs> We'd like to think that someday we could stand before the throne with something, just a, just a little something to show off, just a little merit badge, right? We won't. Our merit before God has nothing to do with us. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve any of it, but God did it all anyways. Our salvation is by his grace alone, apart from any of our own works. For those of us who are Christians, we should be continually reminding ourselves that our salvation, that our justification, that our right standing before God is received by faith alone apart from our works. It's easy to slip into a mindset where we feel self-righteous. We're like, yeah, I know I'm justified by, by grace through faith, but I've got, I've got some works in there too. There's two dangers here at least. Two dangers, pride and despair. On the one hand, we can begin to convince ourselves that we're, we're so good, so worthy, so sacrificial, that it's, it's actually our own works and our own sacrifices, our own endured hardships that earn us favor with God. Because I'm so good. That's pride. On the other hand, the longer we continue with a works righteousness mindset, the more that we fail and fail and fail again because we're sinners. Every time we fail, we'll wonder and we'll worry that God might give up on us. Two dangers, one error. We're justified not by our works, but by faith alone. This is so important to understand. As long as we're convinced that in some way our relationship and our right standing before God is, is hinging on something in us, we're going to be totally unstable Christians. Because every time we fall into sin or disappoint ourselves in our walk with the Lord, we'll think, oh, I ruined it. God's, God's going to hate me now. He doesn't. He never has. Get it into your head that God's love for you has never been about what's in you. His love for you is an unquenchable fire. And the fuel for that fire is not found in the wood box of your life or your deeds. When you were empty, dead in sin, and far from God, he loved you then, and he loves you still, despite your best attempts to throw water on the fire of his love by our sin. It's like a thimble on a house fire. It doesn't work. Abandon any thought that you deserve salvation so you can find freedom in seeing that God's gracious heart towards you is totally gracious to you. You have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any merit or works or good deeds that, you're, that you've ever done or ever could do. That's good news. That's why the gospel is good news. Sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and finally, it's all to the glory of God alone. With this final sola, the, the reformers were countering Roman Catholic teaching and practices where they venerate and celebrate and pray to the saints. Even today, you tune on to Catholic radio, you'll, you'll hear prayers over and over to Mary. 
The most obvious example is, is the, the Hail Mary, which you've probably heard before. It's a, it's a prayer to Mary in which Catholics, sometimes repeating this text thousands and thousands of times, pray, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Here's the problem. And this should be obvious after we've spent the last 40 minutes explaining the total sufficiency of Christ to justify sinners by faith in him. Christ alone is sufficient to aid sinners in their plight. Has Christ's hand grown weak that we should pray to mere humans for our aid? Has Christ's heart grown cold that we should pray to his mother for help? No, his hand is strong to save and his heart is ever towards his people. We do not need to venerate or pray to or light candles to or in any other way glorify anyone for our entire salvation other than God himself as he's powerfully worked in the person of Christ. Amen. To God alone belongs the glory for our salvation. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, our salvation is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The whole work of salvation from start to finish is the gracious gift of God, so no one's allowed to boast about it except God himself. God alone deserves the glory for our salvation. God has been very good to us in Jesus. In the true biblical gospel of Jesus, God's mighty power and his tender heart for sinners are broadcast for the universe to behold and to celebrate. What good news indeed that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. What more could we ask for? We're going to conclude our service this morning by partaking of the Lord's Supper. I think it's exactly what we need to do after this sermon. So let's glorify God together in remembering and proclaiming the spilt blood and the broken body of our glorious Savior. Amen? Before we do that, let's go to prayer. Father, we, we thank you, thank you, thank you for the marvelous salvation which you have won for us through the death and resurrection of your beloved son, Jesus. We thank you that we, as helpless sinners, can find every help we need by your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you for how complete your saving work is in him, that we can add nothing to the final justification which we have received by faith in Christ. Send us now to your table with joy in our hearts, with a feeling sense of the joy of knowing Jesus as our all-sufficient Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dean, if you could come up.
Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
He left it to the church, and he told us to do it. Christians all around the world, even now, as they gather with each other on Sunday, are, are breaking bread together and drinking the cup as a way of taking part together in Christ's body and Christ's blood. We use um, bread and fruit of the vine because that's what Jesus told us to use. And the Lord's Supper is an outward sign of an inward grace. We who have come to faith in Jesus have spiritually and inwardly taken part in Jesus' body and blood. We've been talking about his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead have won for us forgiveness of sins, final justification, and adoption into the family of God. We, we eat the bread and drink the together the life that we have in Jesus' death and resurrection. Dean, would you pray for us as we eat the bread?
Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die. We thank you for his blood spilt for us, shed for us, for our forgiveness, propitiation for our sins. Lord, you bless us as we remember his sacrifice, your present word. We pray this in Jesus' name. same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise the Lord. That Jesus Christ, our Savior, died, was raised from the dead, and he's coming again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and sing. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.